Thanks, Carrie. Good morning, everybody. Uh, standing back there, I just had a moment of just realizing that a lot of you are going to be our friends that are here for the summer and the fall are going to be leaving soon. I was kind of sad. I was going to miss you guys, you know, that are taking off. Um, it's been a really great summer to, to be with so many uh, wonderful people from out of town. And, uh, so going to miss you guys. Claire and I were out of town again on Monday over in uh, Grand Junction. And one of the things we did is we went to the city market in Grand Junction and uh, to do the grocery shopping. And so uh, the one we went to uh, was, well, for, for like uh, most cities, I guess it's not that big, but for what, what I'm used to now, oh my gosh, it was huge. And when we, we went in, and typically Claire and I, we, we uh, divide and conquer. So I get one cart, she gets the other. And I go, I actually go left in the city market, and she goes right, okay? Because she doesn't trust me to get the vegetables correct. <laughs> and so uh, I, go, I go down, and so what I'm doing is I'm pushing this cart down, you know, behind the uh, cash registers going that direction, you know? It's that, you know, I'm, exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm going along, and I look, uh, I'm looking down the aisles, and I'm like, Oh my God. And every aisle, I'm like, it just keeps on going. It's like three times as long as the Gunnison City Market and eight times as long as, as Clark's. And, uh, and so I'm just, I'm just, I'm walking, I'm just totally focused. And suddenly I, I hit the bar on the, on the cart and I'm almost in it. I ran into a woman. <laughs> it's not uncommon to run into your friends at City Market. But this is not the way to do it. And I, I totally smashed into this lady. I was like, I'm so sorry. She, she was okay, I, I guess. She didn't get mad at me. But I, what I attribute this to is my amazing ability to focus. Uh, there is actually a tie-in between that story and the topic today. And, it, and it's this, really, the... I was, true, I was just amazed. I was just in a moment of, this is, this is incredible. There's so much stuff here. It just keeps going. And uh, what Carrie just read, at the very end of it, you might have noticed, and it, I, liked, I appreciate the way you slowed down there, Carrie, to read that. It just says, the result of the miracle that Jesus did was that the people glorified God, and they were amazed. We've never seen anything like this. There was this sense of awe at what Jesus had done and the goodness of him and it led them to glorify God. And here's what I want to say. This is the one thing I hope you get out of this whole thought and as we read through this is the focus is the end of this passage. The very best place that any one of us can ever be is in a place where we give glory to God and are in awe of Jesus and what he is doing. The best place that you can be the best place that I can be, the church can be, is to be in that spot where we are giving glory to God. And we're in awe of what Jesus is doing. And we say, I, I have never seen anything like this. We're in a series right now called Changed. And the whole point of it is to use the context of the miracles of Jesus. And we're just looking at maybe 10 of those miracles. But these miracles have an impact on people. Somebody gets healed or something happens that's transformational in the life of someone or the people that are watching, the people that see it happen. And so what we're trying to do is aim our attention at 
the, the experience of the people who are impacted by the miracle and what is their response? How do they see it? What changes in them? And so when we look at those people, we say, all right, and, and we watch the miracle ourselves within the story, we, we see Jesus from a new perspective. And I hope that that perspective today is that we settle in and say, I'm in awe of that man. I'm in awe of that man who is the son of God. That's where we're headed. The book of Mark is very purposefully written. In this particular section, starting in chapter 2, if you look at it this week sometime, you can just keep reading down. And it's, it's a little bit hard to see in the English, but if you, the way it's laid out is very purposeful. And there's a surface level, and there is a very deep level to each of the stories that he tells. And Jesus is interacting kind of in, in conflict with... Uh, the religious elite in different situations. So the, those, those, uh, that conflict sets the stage for each of these things that he does. And that what we're going to see is we're going to see that surface piece and then we're going to look below it at the very end of this message. But what, what Mark does is he, he, the story is only 12 verses long. So it's very, very short. There aren't a lot of words. The people are, the characters are very, uh, succinctly described. He doesn't give any elaboration about them. However, it's very poignant that each is there. And so we get, uh, without much imagination, we can understand the whole setting. I hope as she was reading, you're picturing that. But uh, each character is very important in the way they're interacting with Jesus. I don't know if anybody uh, maybe read the Murder on the Orient Express in your life. Um, or you saw the movie, they just recently uh, made a new one. One of the things about that story is that the characters are larger than life. There's a ton of personality in each of those people that are the people on the train. And if you just watch the, the, uh, the preview, I guess, the trailer uh, that's out for the, the, the new one that came out a couple of years ago, you see how hard they, uh, what a great effort they went to to illustrate and, and make these people larger than life. The way they look, the way they talk, everything about them. They're, all of their inflections of body language and everything is very specific. And it's almost like that in this story. He, Mark wants us to see these people very vividly and understand how they're interacting with Jesus and then see Jesus at the end. It's just... Uh, well, what he does is he takes over and he, he establishes himself uh, as su- supreme and sovereign over all. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. So we can picture it. And what I would like to do is ask you guys, is, and, and I try to do this myself, maybe you can pick one of these characters and put yourself in their shoes. One of them you might identify with really well, but then, again, you may not. So I found myself sort of having a piece of several of them. And so, uh, or, or each of them, you might, you might do that or maybe write yourself into the story. So I think if you're using this passage as, a, as devotion for this week, you could say, okay, how is it that I approach Jesus? And how is it that I would come to him in this situation? What would I see? Would I come away, like it says in verse 12, in awe and glorifying God? So maybe think through it with that sense. But of course, at the end, my hope is that we would be at that place where we glorify God because of what Jesus has done. So three words to identify these characters. We're just going to look at three of them. Uh, the main ones, really. 
The first word is resolute. The second word is paralyzed. And the third is sovereign. Resolute, paralyzed, and sovereign. So let's talk about this idea of uh, the resolute characters. These we'll see in uh, verses 3 through 5. And they came to, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And they, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, above Jesus. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the people that I'm saying are resolute are those four men. They're the ones who I see as resolute in this. And maybe you can picture the scene. Uh, so just take yourself back to, to Israel. Um, some of you have been there, but if you haven't, you can imagine what it's like. And uh, it's this fishing village. Capernaum's right on the, co- the northern coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, so it's, it's right there. This is probably the home of, of Peter, or the, the area that Peter came from. And so uh, here is Jesus in this home, and it's not a big place. It can't be a big place, and it's stuffed with people. It's just crowded, and Mark takes the time to say that there's so many people in there that they're just spilling out the door, just cannot fit in. So here comes these four guys, and they're carrying this litter or a, just a uh, the, way it de- the way it describes it is just, it's basically a, a piece of fabric that they're holding this guy on. And they're carrying him towards the, this place where Jesus is. And you can just picture them s- seeing the fact that the door is clogged up. We, we can't get in there. There's just so many people around. There's no way we're going to shove our way through this and get these people to move because they're already sort of craning to, to see. And surely some people are standing around and some people are, are sitting down and they're all at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine what it was like to be in the presence of Jesus in a little room hearing him teach the word of God? Man, that had to be awesome. So anyway, that's what's happening. These people, are still, they're, they don't know this, but they're, they're starting to see there's something really special about Jesus. But these four men have heard and seen what Jesus has done around the community and the, and the countryside. So they are determined to get their friend in front of Jesus, right? So they go up to the house. They're, and some of these houses are all connected and they'd have steps up the side in different places. And so what, however they did it, they figured out how to get this guy up and crawl across the different houses to this place where they were roughly above where Jesus probably was in this, in this room. And the literal words of it are that they, they dug through the ceiling. So if you can imagine that happening just right here, you know, suddenly there's some dust coming down, right? Right? And then they, those were like, they were like, uh, there was... Uh, clay tiles, kind of how they did it with, with dirt and other things. They, they peel this stuff or pull these things back and s- there's got to be a crowd, since there are all these people, they must be like, oh, what's going on? You know, I got to scoot back. So they, make, they press their way back and there's a little bit of space here. And then you see this guy's head, you know. Whoop. You know, you, I mean, just like it would be right now. You would see this one head and then maybe another, you know, silhouette of another, you know, head poking over. And, and everything's quiet now, right? Because we're, Trying to figure out what, what in the world is happening. 
these guys have grabbed some ropes. You know, it's a fishing town. There's nets and everything. We it doesn't describe how this happens. Mark leaves it to us to figure it out. But somehow, they let this guy, and they probably didn't dig a whole, you know, his whole side of his body. They probably just kind of stood him up and let him down through there, right? Because they don't have enough time. I mean, how long are they going to sit there and wait for the thing to happen? And so, you just imagine, I mean, people are, must have... They know who this person is because they're all part of the same community. It'd be like, just like Crested Butte, you'd know who the paralytic was. And they let this guy down. And so some people help and they, he's obviously laying on the floor here in front of Jesus. I mean, it had to be just a, a stunning scene. And what's, you know, everybody's thinking, what's Jesus gonna do? How's he gonna handle this situation? Those guys... Those four men wanted the healing of their friend, right? They would not have done that if they did not want their friend to be healed. They went to, you know, pretty extreme lengths. And uh, I had to ask myself, you know, what would have happened if Jesus didn't heal him? And, and here's, here's the thought, and Lisa actually prayed to this exact point just now. Deep faith, the faith that Jesus saw, isn't rooted in what we get. It's rooted in Jesus. See, what he saw was not, oh, I have faith in you, Jesus, if you do this thing. What he saw was they had faith in him. And they put their friend in front of him, trusting him. And I think when we're coming to Jesus, when we're talking to God about what it is that are our needs, we just prayed about several things that are going on. We're, we're putting those things before him. We're not telling him what to do and our faith isn't based on the outcome. Our faith is in Jesus. And that's when in the end, we'll be able to glorify him. We don't know what's best. We know what we want. What, what I love about it is the urgency that these guys feel about getting their friend in front of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite commentators' name is Ben Witherington. And he says this, uh, he says, They dared to do the difficult, the dangerous, the controversial in order to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. They dared to do the difficult, the dangerous, the controversial in order to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. And then that made me ask myself, and I want to ask you, who is it that you are determined to bring before Jesus? What extravagant links, what strategizing have you done with your friends in order to bring someone before Jesus? To get them in, into his presence. Now, I don't necessarily recommend doing it the way these guys, like tying somebody up and bringing them and like dropping them in front of a bunch of people. Uh, you know, that's kind of exposing somebody. That's probably not the best, you know, technically the best way to uh, engage someone and lead them towards Jesus. But these guys are pretty bold. Um, I wonder what that guy was thinking. You know, did he want them to take him? You know, there are a lot of things we're not going to talk about, but um, you, have to, you have to ask yourself. But y'all, if you're a believer here, if you're a believer... May, the, may we have the determination that those guys had to get our friends who need Jesus in front of him. I mean, 
It's inspiring to see what they did. I mean, it wasn't complicated, but it was risky in their community, in, the, in their fellowship, in the way that things worked in those places. And they just disrupted this whole event in order to get their friend in front of Jesus. They weren't going to miss the opportunity. And Jesus, it says, literally it says that he saw their faith. He saw their faith and he responded to it. He didn't wonder about their faith. He saw their faith. And I think that's one of the reasons that, one of the the ways that might be um, helpful for us to introduce people to Jesus if, if they could actually see our faith instead of wondering if we know anything about Jesus at all. Jesus saw their faith. I remember a a story I heard uh, a while back about two boys who were uh, 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 elementary school boys and they were selling stuff for their school to get on a trip or something. And and they'd been all over the neighborhood in the summer and it was the evening, it was burning hot and they were so done and had had very little luck at the end. And they're they're like, oh, I can't go on. And one of them was like, I want, we got to go to this one other house. And the, other, the boy's like, I'm not doing it. I'm done. We've been turned down so many times. I want to go. And the other one's like, no, really, we've got to go. It's, it's pretty far. It's over here. We've got to go up this long driveway and all this. And the kid's like, it's 1,000 degrees. Obviously, the story's in Texas. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they, finally, the one talks to the other. And they go, and they, they get to the house, and they knock on the door. And the man comes to the door. And, and they show him the stuff. And he says, I'll take a whole bunch of that stuff. And the one who didn't want to go says, all right, it was worth it. He says, what? What's going on? And the boy who was trying to convince him to go said, you know, the reason I knew we had to go up here is because this guy always buys everything. He knew the guy. He just didn't, didn't tell all the facts to his friend. But he brought him before the guy who would respond. He knew. He knew. That's the kind of faith that these guys had. He he knew, this boy knew that there would be a response, a good and healthy response from this person. And these men felt the same way. So we have these resolute men dragging their friend to put him before Jesus. And then we have the paralyzed. Read this with me in verses 4 through 7. And then Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So when I say the paralyzed, I don't mean the paralytic. I mean the scribes, the religious elite. They had decided that for Jesus to be real, that he had to fit into a certain mold. Uh, if you're skeptical, I tend to be skeptical about things. Uh, I have a bit that identifies with the scribes. Like, you really got to get this right for me to, to agree. Right. And I don't know if any of you are very controlling. I'm not going to point any fingers. But uh, part of that is that we want things a certain way. And all of us have it to some extent. We're skeptical. We want to be in control. And Jesus shatters those things. He doesn't look like we expect. He doesn't do things like we expect them to be done. Are are we paralyzed and unable to have faith because it doesn't look exactly like we thought it should? I think some of us too uh, 
have had our view skewed by others. Our, our view of Jesus and our understanding of who he is has been obscured by other people. Sometimes they're not Christians, like professors or people who proclaim to be able to explain to us how there is no God and have uh, concrete reasons why that's true. And then, you know, there are the Christians who have their back to the world and have blocked out the view of Jesus, have not opened a pathway for people to come through and get close to him. Broken people like us, like us, those that are Christians, we tend to do that. We tend to sort of obscure the view of Christ by bringing our own baggage, our own controlling nature and all that to, the ta- to, the presence, to his presence. And, and he invites us to that. But uh, some of us have had our view blocked. And so what, what this is, again, I love the idea of being in the place of the paralyzed man because I'm going to Jesus with hope and just right before him and all I see is him. So if you're wrestling with who Jesus is and, and, and what he's actually doing and who God is and why this is all the way it is, I would encourage you to get in the word and with Jesus primarily and then let other people inform you. Don't have your view obscured. But those guys, those uh, religious elite, those who knew the right stuff, uh, they say something, and I read it to you just now, that is pretty profound, and they just didn't even notice it. In verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. And here it is. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Huh. Yeah. There's a little irony in that. And Mark wants us to see it really clearly. Mark's like going... Who can forgive sins but God alone? They see and they know that only God can forgive the sin of a person. Not just forgive you for hurting my feelings or forgive you for doing something uh, hard or bad or whatever. Forgive the sin. They say only God can do this. They are proclaiming the truth about Jesus. I don't know if, if, if this resonates with you, but it reminded me of a uh, little later in Jesus' life, right? Uh, before the crucifixion, he's headed from raising Lazarus. He's kind of on a popularity high and he's moving into Jerusalem and Caiaphas and the other religious leaders are trying to figure out how are we going to do something about Jesus? We cannot let him rise to power. Things are going to go poorly if we let him rise. And he says something that is very obvious but uh, is ironic. He says to, to the people who are strategizing about killing Jesus, he says, you guys, you've got to understand. This is in John 11. He says, it's better, get this, that one man should die for all the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I mean, the, the truth was on the tip of everyone's tongue. It was right in front of them. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. They were paralyzed because they had to see, things had to go a certain way for them in order for them to believe. Unable to see God at work. Even though he was right in front of them and they even could say the words of what he was doing, the specific words of what Jesus was doing. So we have the resolute people bringing a person before Jesus. We have the paralyzed who can't believe. And then we have the sovereign. And of course, by that I mean Jesus 
One of Mark's themes is Jesus being sovereign over every situation. That's a theme that gets repeated in the book of Mark. But the method that he uses in this situation requires us to look really deeply. So I want to ask you to listen carefully and read along carefully when I read verses 8 through 11. So Jesus responds to the, fair, to the uh, scribes, to the religious elite. He says, all right, which is easier? Which one of these things is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now that, those words are not necessarily straightforward. Is it a riddle? I mean, really, is it a riddle? Is he, what's happening? Is he saying to them, literally, which is easier to say? Which one of these, is, is that the question? Is it a riddle? Like, is it easier for me to say, you're forgiven or rise up and walk? And, and there's no way to answer that question. Is it like, how many syllables? Is it complicated? You know, what is it that makes that a meaningful riddle? How, how do they answer that? Does he mean that it's, about application? Like, is it easier to say those things than actually make them happen? You know, which, which one is easier to say versus make literally happen? And I, I think maybe it was neither. So think with me and, and maybe just drift back and, and look at this as I'm talking about it. When they first came into the room. When the, when the man was first let into the room and those guys are looking over the edge, Jesus says, he, he says, son, your sins are forgiven, right? That was the most important, most primary thing that could be done. For him to be forgiven was better than being healed. Okay, think about that with me for a second. When we bring things to Jesus, we think we know what the answer should be, right? Jesus says, son, which was a term of endearment, son, like, my child, you are forgiven. Your relationship is restored. And that relationship being restored, that forgiveness, that came at the, Jesus' cost, his own cost, right? So he was actually signing his death warrant by saying those words to that guy, Right? Those words came at an incredible cost. It wasn't casually offered. Because the sin was the real problem. Not not that he was being punished for his sin, but sin is the real problem. Broken relationship with God is the real issue that we all have. Tim Keller says, No matter what you think is your most urgent need, forgiveness of sin is actually it. No matter what you think your greatest need is, the actual need is forgiveness of sin. 
So he restores this guy to relationship with God. And then he says this very unusual thing. Uh, to, I've wrestled with this for quite a while. Because he says, okay, in, I, which one's easier to say? I've already said to him, to his face, I forgive you. You're forgiven. And now he says to, the, to these people, he says, now I'm going to prove to you that I have authority to forgive. Rise up and walk. Shouldn't he say, I forgive you again? He says, I'm going to prove to you I can forgive. Rise up and walk. Uh, two parts to understanding what Jesus was doing. One is this. When he said, you're forgiven, he, he was, it couldn't be seen. But when he said, rise up and walk, it could be seen, right? So there's that piece, the, the, the surface piece going on. So rise up and walk. And can you imagine what that was like? Like, because he's laying there on the floor and he says, rise up and walk. And not only that, grab your stuff and go on. So his whole body is healed and he walks out. And so it's super crowded. You've ever walked over a bunch of people sitting? You know, you got to get over them. You got to have balance. But here, here's the beautiful thing that I think Mark wants us to see and wants, us to, wants to resonate in our hearts. The deeper meaning is, is, a, is a foreshadowing. He says, I'll show you how I forgive. Rise up. Think about that for a second. I forgave this guy. And here's how it happened. And I'm going to prove it by being completely incapable and rising up. He's foreshadowing exactly what he is going to do. He's going to prove that we can be forgiven by rising. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. And he's going to prove it by rising up. And he's putting it right out there in front of them. Who can do this but God alone? God alone can do it by sacrificing himself and rising up. And I think Jesus is setting that stage and Mark wants us to see it very clearly. So we have the resolute, we have the paralyzed, we have the sovereign over everything. And I just want to close. I'm just going to stop and pray after I read uh, verse 12. And then I think our team's going to come up and we're going to sing a song to close. In verse 12 he says, And the man rose up and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Father, we come to you. God, I pray that we would be, uh, I mean, maybe that we would find ourselves in this story in some place, and I, I know we all come in different places, but that at the end, God, we would give glory to you because of your son. And I thank you that he was willing to uh, sacrifice himself. 
in order for us to be in a right relationship, reconciled to you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.